At this year's Oscars, Oppenheimer took home the award for Best Picture, Emma Stone and Robert Downey Jr. also picked up wins, and Ryan Gosling brought the Kennergy. For a recap of all the highlights, listen to the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR. Hey, it's David. I'm your host for this edition of the News Roundup. And just a quick heads up before we start the show. The news is rapidly changing and things may be different by the time you hear this episode. Stay up to date by listening to your local NPR member station and visiting npr.org for all the latest. You're listening to the 1A Podcast. I'm NPR's David Gura, and it's time for another edition of the News Roundup. Let's get into it. It's been two and a half years since a mob stormed the Capitol, and the events that led up to January 6th still dominate the headlines. Well, this week was no exception. It's a two-tier system, but it's worse than that. It's a very corrupt system. President Trump went up in the polls and was uh, actually surpassing President Biden for re-election. So what do they do now? Weaponize government. You know, this is... um propaganda understood as a form of magic that the people perpetrating don't believe in, but the people who receive it still do. Of course, there's plenty of other important stories we need to catch up on. I cannot promise a completely Barbie-free conversation today. My colleague Ron Elving is a senior editor and correspondent on the Washington desk at NPR. Annie Grayer is also with us. She covers politics for CNN as one of the network's Capitol Hill reporters. And Jeff Mason is a White House correspondent for Reuters. Hi to all of you. Good to be with you, David. Well, let's start in the state of Michigan, which is prosecuting 16 Republicans who acted as fake electors for then-President Trump in 2020, all of them accused of submitting false certificates that purportedly confirmed they were the legitimate electors despite Joe Biden's victory in the state. Here is Michigan's Attorney General Dana Nessel. That was a lie. They weren't the duly elected and qualified electors, and each of the defendants knew it. Ron, let me start with you and ask you just for a a definition here. What does it mean to be a fake elector and what happened uh, in that basement, that RNC headquarters basement, uh, now more than a a couple years ago? There is a designated day when the Electoral College meets in all 50 state capitals. Uh, That is the way it works. That is the way it has worked for centuries. And these folks tried to go to the Capitol. Some of them were even talking about hiding out in the Capitol overnight to get in. Remember, this is back during COVID time. There were some restrictions. And so only the people who were the legitimate electors representing the Biden campaign, which had won the state by 154,000 votes, three percentage points. This was not one of the huge squeakers like, say, Arizona or uh, Wisconsin. And these folks uh, really had no right to go to the state Capitol that day. But they were summoned, not entirely clear by whom, and they were told to meet in the basement of the Republican headquarters for the state and to uh, prepare to go to the Capitol. Some did try to go to the Capitol, but they were given these certificates, told to sign them, and given the impression, in some cases it appears, that this was a contingent thing, that Hmm. somehow if the election result could be changed and Trump had actually won Michigan, they would be the legitimate electors and they would have the right to vote on Electoral College Day. Uh, That was actually not the case, and that is why they have been charged. Looking at these eight felonies, each of them has been charged with the same election law forgery, accounts of forgery, conspiracy to commit election law forgery. Uh, We're talking about 16 individuals here. And, Ron, when you look at that list of of who's been targeted here, I mean, we've got a a former Michigan GOP co-chair, vice chair. Help us understand who who the uh, attorney general has gone after. These are the people who were designated to be the electors if Trump had won the state. Mm -hmm. Now, there were a couple who had been designated and who uh, didn't take part in this, and they were 
they were subbed for by a couple of other people who got uh, drafted into this. Uh, it's not clear who persuaded these people that they should be doing this. Some of them do seem to have been told that this would only be contingent. But in fact, what happened was that these documents that they signed were forwarded to the United States Senate and to the National Archives in accordance with the laws that govern the Electoral College, just as though they were legitimate. So whatever they were told, uh, the forgeries went forward under color of law and attempted to overturn the result of the election in Michigan. Jeff Mason, let me ask you about the, the reaction to this thus far, especially from, from lawmakers. What have we heard uh, since these charges were unsealed? Well, so far, the people, uh, David, who have been charged are following sort of a similar script to what uh, President Trump uses in cases like this. They've called it a witch hunt. They've said that they've done nothing wrong and um, are, are saying that this is a prosecution that should not go forward. And to just piggyback on your previous question to Ron, some of these uh, fake electors included a sitting mayor, uh, a Republican National Committee member, a school board member, and other Trump supporters. So that's, those are the folks who are involved in this and the, the reaction largely from, from lawmakers and from these, from these people who are affected has been to, um, to follow the Trump playbook. Annie Greer, our focus is on Michigan where these charges were unsealed, but uh, we know that schemes like this took place in, in, in other states. Are charges likely in, say, Arizona or Nevada or Wisconsin? Well, that's right. I mean, there was a fake elector scheme in seven states that Donald Trump lost in 2020. And because this is such a multi-pronged uh, effort across the country, it's largely been handled through the Department of Justice and their criminal investigation, which I know we'll get to <laughs> in a minute. Um, and that so they have been kind of the quarterback of looking at what all these states are doing. But we know that the Arizona attorney general has started assigning a team of prosecutors um, uh, to their to look at the fake electors in May. Um, and Nevada, the Nevada attorney general announced his state is not going to be bringing charges because he said that his state doesn't have the statutes to, to address the conduct in question. But of course, other than Michigan, the big state leading its own probe is Georgia, where um, uh, District Attorney Fannie Mae has been hard at work there and we're expecting charging decisions at some time this summer. Anna Grayer setting me up perfectly for my next question here about the Department of Justice's investigation. Uh, we got news of this so-called target letter this week. In a post on his Truth Social platform on Tuesday, Donald Trump said the Justice Department notified his legal team on Sunday he could face charges in its investigation examining his actions leading up to January 6th. Ron Elving, I go to you for another definition here. For, for those who don't know, what, what is a target letter uh, and what does it portend for the former president? target letter says that a federal investigation into apparently criminal activity, uh, is identifying that individual as a person who could be indicted. Now, these letters are sent out to let people know, in case they haven't figured it out already, uh, that they're being, being not yet charged, but being looked at for charges. And if they wish to, they have the right to address the grand jury and try to explain why they should not be charged. Now, in this particular instance, I don't think anyone expected the former president to avail himself of that opportunity. Uh, certainly his lawyers would have advised him against it. He has, generally speaking, 
kept mum about these things with respect to the actual proceedings and then gone to Truth Social to call it all a witch hunt, as you've said. But uh, in this particular instance, he had four days. The expectation was that he would have to come across with whatever he wanted to tell the grand jury by midnight last night. And so today would be the first day that those four days having expired, Jack Smith might actually show us an indictment. And that would, of course, be the second indictment from Jack Smith. He was also the special counsel handling the Mar-a-Lago documents. On that note, uh, Annie Grayer, there's a lot to keep track of here, but there was some action in a courtroom in Fort Pierce, Florida this week, a pretrial hearing that Judge Aileen Cannon had um, about the, the, that trial that Ron, Ron just mentioned. Uh, and I understand we have a date now. There, there's a date for when that trial is set to begin. Give us the latest on uh, that investigation as it's proceeding to trial. Yeah, so we know that May 20th is now the first date of a two-week period where the trial in uh, the classified documents case where Donald Trump has already been indicted can start. Um, So this just gives you a sense of how long uh, of a runway we have here now that indictments have been handed down, how much time both sides are going to have to prepare. And of course, we have an election going on where Donald Trump is the uh, leading Republican candidate. So those are all going to be factors here. Um, Prosecutors had wanted this to be a speedy trial. Donald Trump's side had wanted to uh, slow this down as much as possible. So that May 20th period is going to be when we're going to see some further action. Yeah, a later date than the Justice Department wanted. I think they wanted it to start in, in December. Uh, and Jeff, let me turn to you. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis still appears to be Trump's main challenger for the Republican nomination. Uh, we heard something different from him this week about January 6th. What did he say about the events that took place then? Uh, yes, he is. Uh, Governor DeSantis is certainly, the, at least in the polls, the closest competitor to former President Trump, although he trails him by double digits. And uh, he addressed the January 6th charges um, or the issue with regard to President Trump this week by saying uh, he, he thought that President Trump should have come out more forcefully on that day uh, to do something about the, the, his supporters who were storming the Capitol. However, he went on to say, and this is just kind of the way he's threading the needle, that uh, he didn't believe it should be criminalized, i.e. what President Trump did or didn't do. He said to try to criminalize that, that's a different issue entirely. We want to be in a situation where you don't have one side just constantly trying to put the other side in jail. So that's him sort of threading a needle there, um, criticizing his rival, but also not wanting to upset the former president's base. And criticizing his rival in a news conference, we should say. He's done some interviews uh, as well, so uh, talking more to the press than the governor of Florida has uh, in the past. Coming up... More politics on 1A, some early Democratic nerves at the prospect of a well-funded third-party campaign, and anger over comments from one high-profile Democrat for calling Israel a racist state. Stay with us. This message comes from NPR sponsor Comcast. For more than a decade, Comcast has been committed to bridging the digital divide and connecting millions to affordable high-speed Internet. But the barriers to getting connected go well beyond affordability. Through Project Up, Comcast is committing $1 billion to reach millions with digital skills training, resources, and opportunities needed to succeed in a digital world. Project Up, building a future of unlimited possibilities. Learn more at comcast.com slash project up. 
Want all of NPR without relying on your radio? Visit NPR.org to be connected to your local station wherever you are and wherever the news takes you. Get your vital mix of rigorously reported local and national stories all live, free, and at your fingertips at NPR.org. Let's get back to the roundup. Well, the movement to get more names on the 2024 ballot is getting attention. No Labels is a bipartisan organization aiming to add a third-party candidate to the 2024 presidential race. They held their first town hall event in New Hampshire this week. Here's West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin in conversation with Utah's former governor, John Huntsman. Manchin is a Democrat, of course, and Huntsman, a Republican. We're here to make sure that the American people have an option. And the option is, can you move the political parties off their respective sides? They've gone too far right and too far left. If that movement can move, but they can't be done, that can't be done unless they're threatened. The only way you can threaten is have people out there that says, listen, they can't win. Either side can't win without the independent. Without that independent, that center left, center right, an independent Republican, an independent Democrat. If they have another option, then they're in trouble. Ron Elving, let me ask you about the import of what happened at that town hall at St. Anselm College in, in New Hampshire this week. Why is this group trying to prop up a, a third-party candidate this time around? They believe, if you take them at face value, they believe that we are headed towards a Joe Biden-Donald Trump rematch from the 2020 election and that that's not what the American people want. And there was an NBC News poll in April that said that 60 percent of the people in the country didn't think Trump should run again and 70 percent of the people in the country didn't think Biden should run again, mostly citing his age. So there is a point here. We are on our way because of the way the primary and caucus system works for nominating our presidential candidates. We're on our way to having two people who, while they'll win that process in their respective parties, that's actually a fairly small vote of the American people. Back in, uh, back in let's see, 2016, mm-hmm. the percentage of the country that actually voted for either Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump in the caucuses and primaries before we got to the general election was less than 10% of the total country. So... These two gentlemen have a point, and No Labels has a point. It's not a new one. It's something we've heard many times before, that there needs to be more of a choice. There needs to be a third option, maybe a fourth, maybe a fifth option. We shouldn't be trapped into two political parties and two only, both of whom nominate somebody who is pleasing to their activist base and not necessarily to the great middle of America. And yet, Ron, there is this question about this group running a spoiler Uh, And I go back to what you said just a moment ago, if you take them at face value, and my former colleague at NBC, Vaughn Hilliard, sat down with Nancy Jacobson this week, who who runs the group, who said to him, we will not spoil for either side. The only reason to do this is is to win. So on the face value (laughs) of this, uh, talk about the concerns that especially a lot of Democrats have about this group. It would not take much to flip, say, Wisconsin or Arizona or Georgia from their 2020 result for Biden to a 2024 result for Trump, it would not take a huge move. And it would not take anybody necessarily even voting for Trump. If some of the people who voted for Biden in 2020 were to bail out and vote for a no-labels candidate, whoever that might be, and and by the way, their process for choosing one is, well, it's it's not entirely clear how exactly Mm -hmm. it would work, except that there would be 
a Democrat and a Republican on the ticket, and they would not both uh, they could not both be of the same party. And uh, they want to choose this person in Dallas next April. Uh, that's not associated with your quiz question, by the way. Uh, <laughs> And, 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 you know, it's all a little murky, and, and we don't know where the money comes from. They're talking about spending $70 million to get on the ballot all over the country, $70 million. And we don't know where it's coming from because they're, they're organized under a part of the tax code that's different from political parties. So all of this, maybe a lot of questions and not so many answers, but they are right in saying that people would like to have another choice. And if there were some way of providing that choice and having it be on the ballot in all 50 states, I think a lot of people would appreciate having that choice. Andy Grayer, on having choices, uh, you were up at the Rayburn House office building this week for a hearing of the House Select Committee on the Weaponization of the Federal Government. Robert F. Kennedy Jr. called there to testify. He has been spreading, continuing to spread conspiracy theories on, on the campaign trail. This was a hearing that was focused on social media Censorship. What was notable from the testimony that he delivered uh, on Capitol Hill? Well, David, I was in the room there yesterday, and let me tell you, it was really tense. Uh, RFK was claiming that he has never been anti-vaccine, he's never been racist or anti-Semitic during this hearing that was supposed to focus on censorship, despite what we've seen, which is a litany of conspiracy and discrimination discriminatory statements that he has promoted over the years. I mean, just last week, RFK falsely claimed that Ashkenazi Jews and Chinese people are, quote, most immune to COVID and said there's an argument that COVID is even ethnically targeted. Now, Democrats on the committee tried to use RFK's words against him and read a lot of his statements out, but RFK kept uh, making this point, despite being confronted with his previous statements, that he is none of uh, he's none of those names, um, and it really led to some tense moments in the hearing. Democrats tried to move the hearing into executive session, arguing that Republicans should not be giving this person public airtime. They wanted to move the hearing into a private format so that his comments couldn't be amplified or um, aired publicly. But Republicans, who were the ones who brought RFK in, said, you know, what Democrats were doing was a form of censorship. They said that RFK has uh, a right to be here and to talk about um, what he's been uh, talking about publicly. So it just got into a very heated conversation around uh, what is free speech, what is protected speech, and what is inflammatory and needs to uh, be censored and ultimately to protect democracy. The Republican-led House passed a resolution this week to condemn anti-Semitic rhetoric and express support for Israel. That legislation came after Progressive Caucus Chair Pramila Jayapal argued Israel was, quote, a racist state. The Washington Democrat later walked back those comments. Here's House Speaker Kevin McCarthy speaking on Tuesday before the vote. This isn't the first person in the Democratic conference that has continued to make anti-Semitic comments. We've watched what they have continually to do. There are a number of them over there. I think if the Democrats want to believe that they do not have a conference that continues to make anti-Semitic remarks, they need to do something about it. Because they've defended these individuals time and again. Jai Paul's comments and this resolution came just before uh, Israel's President Isaac Herzog gave a speech to a joint meeting of Congress uh, this week. 
Jeff Mason, what is the significance of this resolution from the House of Representatives, and what can you tell us about the timing here? This came together very quickly. Sure. There's political significance to it, certainly, David, and that's underscored by the clip that you just played. I think Republicans would like to sort of dig at the differences in the Democratic Party about this. The the differences aren't huge. There were, the measure that you just talked about was, was endorsed by a vote of 412 to 9. So 195 Democrats joined Republicans in voting uh, for the resolution that Israel is not a racist or apartheid state. Uh, And the the resolution also rejected all forms of anti-Semitism and xenophobia. But it it was prompted by the comments from from Congresswoman Jayapal, and there were uh, nine Democrats who voted against it, including Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and uh, Congresswoman uh, Tlaib. So the political significance is that, in general, and there's broad support for Israel in Congress. But there are some who believe that uh, what Israel, Israel's policies towards the Palestinian people um, are, are not acceptable, and, and Republicans are painting that in, in a light that is, is, is trying, I think, to undercut democratic unity otherwise. Ron, let me ask you about the, the, the boycott that Jeff just mentioned there. Uh, and I wonder the degree to which this is something that has to do with the president himself, with Isaac Herzog, uh, or just Israel's policies more, more generally. How do you see what happened there and, I guess, the potential efficacy of, of that small boycott that was conducted by some Democratic members? It is not going to change uh, U.S. policy toward Israel. And it is not going to change the sentiment that uh, you've just referred to, that uh, more than 400 members of the House, as Jeff was saying, uh, were on board for this kind of performative uh, resolution. Uh, doesn't really change anything, doesn't really mean anything, but is an opportunity for everyone to pose for their respective uh, holy pictures with, with their constituency groups. And that's, that's pretty standard uh, congressional behavior back over the years. Uh, there is also here the underlying controversy about Benjamin Netanyahu, mm-hmm. the prime minister, the real leader of Israel. Uh, and while Herzog has the title of president, uh, that's not where the power is in uh, that parliamentary system in Israel. And the real power is Netanyahu. And the question of how much power he's going to have is very much a controversy in Israel, very much a controversy here in the United States and in Congress. And the protests were as much about that as anything else and his overreach in trying to essentially neuter the Supreme Court in Israel and put it under the control of the Knesset, which he largely controls. And Jeff Mason, uh, on that point, we, we had the president of Israel going to the White House meeting with, with President Biden, and uh, that visit was catalytic. It, it has led, uh, I gather, to uh, at least a tentative <laughs> a promise of a meeting between the, the prime minister and President Biden at a future date. That's right. And that is something that has you know, we've been asking about for a while in the press corps and something that the White House and the President Biden uh, up until now have, have not been committing to. So inviting the prime minister to come despite the differences that the White House has with him and the president has with him, uh, particularly over his efforts uh, on the judiciary in Israel, is significant. Let's turn now to weather and climate. Phoenix, Arizona is on a hot streak, literally. Temperatures there have hit highs exceeding 110 degrees for 19 days in a row. That broke a 50-year record. City set another record Wednesday when the overnight low only dropped to 97 degrees. The heat is expected to continue through the weekend. Uh, Jeff, turning back to you, 116 million people are under heat alerts right now, according to heat.gov. How are people dealing with this across the country? 
Well, I've got a couple different answers to that in terms of how people are dealing with it. I think they're they're taking advantage of air conditioning and staying inside. And there's a lot of worry, I think, about um, elderly people and others who are especially vulnerable to extreme heat. So public authorities recommend staying out of the outdoors uh, when it's that hot and staying in places where you can keep cool. On a public policy level, I think this is only underscoring Washington's concern, and to be more specific, the White House's concern about climate change. And you're seeing these concerns around the world because the heat's, um, the, the extreme heat that we're experiencing in the United States and places like Arizona is hitting the globe. Ron Elving, pick up on that from from a public policy perspective. Sort of what what has changed, or what are we hearing from from political leaders here? Human influence, climate change, making our weather patterns more extreme. Of course, meaning already hot summers are just getting hot, hotter and will keep getting hotter. June, the Earth's hottest month on record, and this week, NOAA confirming August will likely be the same. Talk about the the public policy reaction as you see it. The public policy reaction, unfortunately, is not united as it would need to be to have effective action result. What it is instead is reflective of where everybody comes from. So if you're talking to people from energy-producing states, they want to de-emphasize the contribution that carbon fuels make to global warming. So, uh, you know, we kid about wearing a button that says, I just survived the hottest month in the history of the world. Well, great, but that's not particularly funny when you consider the the trajectory that we're on. The trajectory we are on, this record will be broken and broken again and broken again. Mm -hmm. So people from energy states and people from energy consuming states are pretty much falling back on the usual pattern of pointing fingers at the other side And people are trying to stay cool, so they're using more energy. They're using more electricity. They're running their air conditioners more. It would be great if in response to this kind of a crisis, everyone used less, but everyone is using more for the obvious reason. They're all just trying to stay alive and and hopefully somewhat comfortable. Jeff, as you as you peer over at the the Congress from your perch at, at the White House, are you seeing any more movement there, particularly when it comes to getting serious about going after polluters in this country? Well, I'll start that answer by saying the president is very proud and the White House loves to trumpet this of uh, the legislation that that he got passed that puts the the largest amount of money into fighting climate change uh, in history. And so that, of course, was passed by Congress, and, and that is important. In terms of taking on polluters directly, doesn't doesn't look like there's movement there. I, I see that that uh, a, a group of Democratic senators in 2021 pronounced or proposed legislation that would make the the really big polluters pay for climate change. Um, that hasn't gone anywhere. Annie Grayer, last uh, political story to you. Uh, IRS whistleblowers testifying before Congress this week about a years long investigation into Hunter Biden. Uh, President Biden agreed to plead guilty to tax charges last month. What new details did we learn from these whistleblowers about the Hunter Biden case, uh, if any? Well, David, it was a more than six-hour hearing earlier this week um, where we saw for the first time publicly two IRS whistleblowers who had previously testified privately to Congress about their allegations that the Department of Justice had mishandled the criminal probe into Hunter Biden. They both worked at the IRS and were on the Hunter Biden case for many years. We didn't see new evidence come forward, but what I really walked away from that 
hearing was that this topic is not going away. Republicans have really seized on their testimony. Um, their testimony has really ignited a firestorm among mm. Republicans who are now some going as far as to call for the impeachment of the attorney general. Um, you know, these whistleblowers have argued that the Hunter Biden case deviated from procedural norms, that uh, the IRS investigators recommended charging Hunter Biden with far more serious crimes than what Hunter's actually agreed to plead guilty mm-hmm. to. So what we're what's going to what what's clear is that there's still more questions. Congress wants to speak to the U.S. attorney in charge of the Hunter Biden probe and We just, I don't think this is going to go away anytime soon. It's the News Roundup on 1A. We'll be back with more of the biggest domestic headlines in just a moment. Ever feel like you missed the big point of the last movie you watched? At Pop Culture Happy Hour, a podcast by and for pop culture addicts, we'll talk about the latest and greatest culture in depth. For talking points for your next happy hour, check out Pop Culture Happy Hour, four days a week, only from NPR. News is a public service. That's why NPR never puts a paywall in front of our journalism. NPR.org, our free website, promises to stay that way so that you get all of it. Breaking news, pop culture, award-winning journalism, wherever you are. To stay connected, head to NPR.org. From an Iraq war cover-up to towns ravaged by opioids to the roots of our modern immigration crisis, Embedded explores what's been sealed off and undisclosed. NPR's original investigative podcast reveals why these stories and the people behind them matter. Listen to the Embedded podcast only from NPR. Let's get back to the conversation. And seven tech giants, including Google, Meta, and OpenAI, are meeting at the White House today. The companies agreed to make their artificial intelligence product safer and more transparent. Ron Elving, first to you. What are some of these uh, voluntary commitments the companies uh, have agreed to today? They've agreed that they're going to share some of their language, that they want to make a lot of this open source, that they are not going to be as proprietary about the technical aspects of what AI is and how it does its work. And they're not going to be as proprietary about that as they might normally be about something that is this important to their economic future. This is the economic future. Uh, This matters the way the introduction of the cloud mattered. It matters the way, in some respects, the introduction of the Internet itself mattered. And the idea behind the Internet was that, in a very broad sense, it would be open source, that we could all use it, that we could all get on it, that we could all express ourselves and use its power for whatever projects we might happen to have. Uh, And here again, we have that kind of promise now again with AI, but we have learned in the experience that we've had with these other breakthroughs in technology just how volatile the results of that might be, how easily it gets out of control. And the tech giants don't want to be blamed for whatever bad things might be in the offing, and there will surely be negative and adverse effects. So they're trying to be as open about this as they can and inviting us all in to share in the responsibility. The White House Chief of Staff, Jeff Zients, telling NPR, quote, we will use every lever that we have in the federal government to enforce these commitments and standards. At the same time, we do need legislation. Jeff Mason, on that point to you, we have seen executives from these companies meeting with administration officials. Sam Altman has darkened the door of the White House a few times now, I believe, the head of of OpenAI. How likely are we to see congressional legislation regulating AI, in other words, sort of matching what we've seen the White House doing thus far? 
I don't have a good sense of the likelihood in terms of what's going on in Congress on this right now, but I think broadly to pick up from uh, Ron's able explanation of this, people are worried and people in the White House are worried and so I think that probably applies to Congress as well. The, the language that the White House has been using is we want to, we being society I guess, harness the, the advantages or the opportunities from AI but also uh, reduce the risks, and the risks are, are large. So it, it wouldn't surprise me if, if that's something that Congress tries to follow up on as well. Ron Elving making such good points about uh, how this technology is becoming open source. We had Meta entering the battle of the bots, Facebook's parent company announcing its new AI model called Llama 2 on Tuesday. Unlike its competitors, its AI technology will be open source. Uh, it's a large language model the company developed with Microsoft, a generative AI system similar to ChatGPT, which can computer generate human-like conversations from original song lyrics to drafting a, a cover letter. Uh, in a Facebook post on Tuesday, Meta CEO Mark Zuckerberg said that making AI technology open source, quote, improves safety and security because when software is open, more people can scrutinize it to identify and fix potential issues. Others raising big concerns. The Five Rights Foundation advocates for children's safety online. This week, Five Rights Chair Baroness Beepin Kidron spoke with BBC4. What you have to look at is what could this do in, in the wrong hands, as well as, you know, the incredible competition. Jeff, we, we've, we've kind of touched on this a little bit, but, but I'd love to get into a little bit more detail here. What are you know, the White House's safety concerns, politicians' safety concerns more generally about making this kind of technology more widely available? Well, I think I'll answer that question by saying what, what Meta said first about why they're making it open source. And in their blog post, they said, by seeing how these tools are used by others, our own teams can learn from them, improve those tools, and fix vulnerabilities. So I think that's the logic behind making it available so that the technology improves from all of the people who are getting involved. And as far as the White House is concerned, I think they just... I think that part of this is genuine concern about the risks and also a political desire to show that they're on it and looking at it. And, and, and President Biden is holding, uh, will be giving remarks about it uh, later on Friday because of that, that meeting that he's having with the, the tech company CEOs. The, the Supreme Court's affirmative action decision continuing to get a lot of attention from the administration and Congress across Washington. Uh, I want to turn out of the impact of it. Wesleyan University in Middletown, Connecticut, announcing it will end legacy admissions. That's when children of Wesleyan alumni get preference in the application process. That news came weeks after the court struck down affirmative action in college admissions. Here's Wesleyan President Michael Roth speaking to CNN on Thursday. Talking about a relatively small number of highly selective schools that give unfair preferential treatment to the children of alumni. It was clear we should get rid of it. The Supreme Court's decision saying that we shouldn't consider the groups with which students are uh, identified, racial groups, made it even clearer to me that it was um, indefensible to give preference to the children of alumni. Annie, Wesleyan is a, a fairly small selective school, 3,500 students. How much of an impact could this have on the practice of, of legacy admissions more broadly? We've had a few schools, Amherst College, Johns Hopkins, Caltech among them, moving in this direction, but there hasn't been a, a groundswell yet. There hasn't been a groundswell yet, but this is definitely where the conversation is going, David. I mean, in light of uh, affirmative action being struck down. The co whole college admission process is being reevaluated, and you know, a legacy uh, treatment, preferential treatment to legacy students is 
part of that conversation, I think we're going to see a lot of college and universities have to at least answer to this question um, now that the entire um, emissions process is going to be going to be changed. Jeff Mason, I, I was alluding to this a moment ago. The decision is handed down. The White House reacts to it immediately and promises it's going to do more uh, to help folks who have uh, to have student debt. So, previously, this other court decision on, on education. What what movement have we had both on the front of affirmative action and student loan debt, which payments will begin uh, starting up again later later this fall? How is the White House reacting to those two Supreme Court decisions, which have such a, a sort of pivotal role in the, the shape of education in this country? Well, it was a blow to the White House because um, those are policies that they supported, and, and with regard to student loans, was the policy that that, um, that President Biden proposed. They are specifically on student loans, uh, looking for other ways to provide uh, student uh, loan relief, and announced that in the aftermath of the Supreme Court decision, and uh, are also encouraging schools um, to to find an alternative way to to provoke diversity and inclusion, which is a, a value that this administration has has really emphasized over the last two and a half years. But politically, it's it's tricky. And there was a lot of uh, there was a lot of of uh, opposition to the student loan uh, proposal that President Biden did, but also a lot of support and certainly a lot of pressure from the progressive wing of his party. And that is something that he wants to uh, continue to to work on because he needs their support again in 2024. Ron Elving, I turn to you, as I so often do, for, for historical context, context of the importance of, of, of this moment. How do you see those two decisions, the student loan decision and the affirmative action decision, sort of shaping the, the policies of this White House, shaping the, the conversation about politics going into the, to the election? Unfortunately, they both have the effect of narrowing the gate. They both have the effect of saying some of the ways that colleges have tried to make it possible, federal government has tried to make it possible for a wider variety of people and a variety of people both in racial, ethnic, demographic terms and also in terms of economic means to not only go to college but to go to any college they can actually get admitted to, which means not just going to the least expensive, but going to perhaps the most expensive if they can get admitted and if they can get financial support. Uh, That has been a big part of the leveling, if you will, of the availability of elite and general higher education in this country, going back to World War II and the GI Bill and all the things that were done to try to raise the overall level of higher education in the culture. So that's a big Big, a big, big stop sign, or at least slow down sign, uh, that's being shown to the progress that's been made from the standpoint of students and a lot of other people who got opportunities because of those changes. Uh, and I don't mean just students. I think the universities and the colleges themselves uh, benefited enormously from affirmative action, and that is partly racial, partly demographic, and also, I think, partly the introduction of people from all strata of economic success in this country, including people who had no money at all. So to see these programs cut back, uh, I'm, I'm not going to argue the cases that the Supreme Court has decided, uh, but I'm sure they had their reasons. Mm. But it does have an impact, and we shall see what schools can do to ameliorate that impact so as to recapture some of those benefits that I'm referring to. Let's go to another education story playing out in Southern California. Things got very heated at a Temecula Valley Unified School District board meeting on Tuesday. 
We're not going to sexualize our kids. We're not going to go where it's inappropriate, but we do want you to learn history. So you would take that out of California history? Because that's that's the issue is in fourth grade, we learn California history. And that's a piece of California history. So what I'm hearing is, don't say gay. No, that's that's not it. The debate was over three paragraphs in the elementary school curriculum mentioning Harvey Milk, and the board ended up formally rejecting the curriculum over those three paragraphs. Harvey Milk was the first openly gay man to be elected to a public office in California. Annie, students in Temecula Valley are now without textbooks that meet state standards. How has California Governor Gavin Newsom responded to what happened there? Well, David, what happened, when we saw play out in the San Francisco uh, Uh, Board of Supervisors is just the latest of the proxy for the culture war that's brewing across the country, where we're seeing states try and uh, upend and remove any mention of LGBTQ uh, policies or or references in their in their curriculum. And this, I mean, is also playing out in Congress. We're seeing members of Congress try and remove funding for programs for LGBTQ uh, individuals across the board. And the California governor is trying to do his best to intervene here, but, you know, with the school board ruling in that way, the his options are kind of limited. Ron Elving, uh, picking up on that, you know, what do these, these kinds of fights say about how politics is playing out uh, at the most local level? So, yes, we're seeing it reverberate, certainly on the, the presidential trail, seeing it in Congress uh, as well. But, you know, at, at, at meetings like this one uh, of, of a school district in, in Temecula Valley, um, how are we seeing these issues sort of bubble up and, and sort of dominate the conversation at that local level? It's happened in Virginia. It has happened in Florida. It has happened in a number of other states. Generally speaking, it tends to happen in more rural parts of those states, but not exclusively. And also in the suburbs, you see groups of activist parents coming into school board meetings and demanding that something or another be taken out of the curriculum or this book or that book be taken out of the library. Uh, That's not a new phenomenon in American life either. That's been going on for generations, but it had subsided over a long period of time. And it's the issue of uh, gender rights, it's the issue of sexual orientation, and finally the issue of transgender that have brought it back and given a new energy, uh, a new, if you will, cause to the kinds of activists who focus on school boards and try to get the schools to do less to acquaint the students with uh, all the facets of not only history but present life. And before we go... Smile, though your heart is aching. Smile, even though it's breaking. Uh, I was in the New York bureau here getting ready for the show and saw the news that master vocalist Tony Bennett died today. He was 96. Uh, In 2011, he told the BBC he owed his success to the training he received after the Second World War when he joined the American Theater Wing. They gave us the best education that anybody could ever have. It was a wonderful school. And the one thing they taught us is never compromise, just sing quality. Whatever, if you're an actor, just go with the best scripts. If you're a singer, find the best composers and only sing good songs. Don't do any trick songs that might become famous and be forgotten. And it was a very good lesson. 
Sage advice there from Tony Bennett, who won 19 Grammys, released 70 albums over his career. At 88, he broke his own record as the oldest living performer with a Bloomberg, uh, sorry, Billboard 200 number one album for his Lady Gaga collaboration, Cheek to Cheek. Bennett was diagnosed with Alzheimer's in 2016, but continued to perform until two years ago. He released his last album in 2021. That's the time you must keep on trying. Smile, what's the use of crying? You'll find that life is still worthwhile. Would love to hear from all of you, starting with you, Annie. Just how are you remembering this musical giant, thinking back on, on his career? Well, as a former New Yorker, it is a particularly sad day. I mean, Tony Bennett's, I mean, more than decades-long career just was a soundtrack for that appealed to everyone. I mean, he collaborated with all kinds of musicians, even Lady Gaga, um, and they won a Grammy together. So, you know, he's not just somebody that appealed to one generation. I think everyone can think of a Tony Bennett song and think of his voice, and it's just a sad day, but an amazing, amazing career uh, from him. Jeff Mason, you thinking of one, uh, a memory that you have of, of Tony Bennett? You know, the memory I have is uh, watching him sing when he had Alzheimer's mm-hmm. and um, how that is such a testimony to the power of music generally and to the intricacies and wonders of memory. When you lose um, what you do with Alzheimer's, music still stayed with Tony Bennett and he was able to share that with the world uh, nearly up until his dying day. Listen to Tony Bennett here on the way out. My thanks to Annie Grayer of CNN, Ron Elving from NPR, and Jeff Mason from Reuters. Coming up on the global edition of the News Roundup, the head of MI6, the British intelligence agency, calls on Russians to spy on their government on behalf of the UK. And we get into the latest from U.S. Special Climate Envoy John Kerry's time in China this week. Got all this and more still ahead. Stay with us. That's the time. You must keep on trying Smile, what's the use of crying? You'll find that life is still worthwhile If you just smile. In a stressful election year, we know that a good show, movie, or book can feel like a sacred thing. At Pop Culture Happy Hour, we believe pop culture can be good for you. So we're here four days a week to bring you a book, movie, or show recommendation to put you in high spirits. For a dose of old-fashioned pop culture therapy, listen to the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast only from NPR. Big news stories don't always break on your schedule. But with the NPR app, news, culture, and podcasts are ready when you want them. In your pocket. Download the NPR app today. Here and Now, Anytime is a show that helps you make sense of the news. We're not about clickbait headlines or salacious soundbites. And in 20 to 30 minutes every afternoon, we'll make you an expert on your world. 
ease into your evening with a steadier, calmer lens on the news. Listen to Here and Now anytime from NPR and WBUR, wherever you get your podcasts. From your car radio to your smart speaker, NPR meets you where you are in a lot of different ways. Now we're in your pocket. Download the NPR app today. Now let's turn to news from around the globe. This week, a new video emerges of the head of the Wagner Group, Yevgeny Prigozhin, ending weeks of speculation about his whereabouts. We've seen the latest in a series of high-profile visits to Beijing and some new details emerging about the U.S. soldier who bolted into North Korea and was detained. With us to recap the week that was, Joyce Karam, senior news editor at Al Monitor. She writes the China Middle East Briefing Newsletter. David Rennie is the Beijing bureau chief for The Economist and co-host of the Drum Tower podcast. Emily Tampkin is a reporter and the author of the book Bad Jews, A History of American Jewish Politics and Identities. And let's start this hour in Russia. Officials announced Monday they are pulling out of the Black Sea Grain Initiative, a deal brokered by the U.N. and Turkey, The year-old agreement allowed shipments of Ukrainian grain to travel past the Russian naval blockade in the Black Sea. The deal seen as vital to keeping prices down and keeping the global food supply intact. We also saw this week an attack on the Kerch Bridge, which links Russia to Crimea and is a key roadway for Russian troops. Emily Tampkin, to you first. Uh, Was canceling this deal a direct response or was this move pre-planned? No, I mean this. I, th- I think the deal had been had been questioned before. I think, um, although they did after the Kerch attack say that there would be um, that there would be consequences for it, um, I, and we should just say like the Black Sea grain deal is not was not just about Ukraine. It was mm. about making sure that people around the world were able to be fed. Now there were attacks, for example, on um, grain. Uh, storage centers in the south of Ukraine, um, and those Russia did say were in retaliation for the attack on the on the Kerch Bridge. Um, you know, it's it's involving not just Ukrainian civilians, but civilians around the world. What can you tell us about this bridge, uh, th- this passageway so critical to Russia? This bridge just built a few few years ago and has already sustained a, a major attack. I think ten ten months ago. Talk, if you would, Emily, just about the importance of it and the significance of this attack. Right. So this is this. I mean, we should say this is the second time in less than a year that this bridge has been attacked. Uh, it's important symbolically for for connecting Russia to Crimea, and it also uh, literally is a, is uh, and and logistically is important for mm-hmm. supplies. Um, Russia blamed Ukraine for the attack and said that it was maritime drones. Ukraine did not directly admit that it was behind it, but sort of did a coy like, ah, oh, we've noted with interest that an important something that's important to Russia was hurt. Um, and, uh, a, we also know that according to a Russia appointed official that, um, that three people were, were wounded and one, at least one was killed by this attack. Um, and again, we know that the retaliation for this was to, uh, hit, uh, to strike Southern Ukraine, including grain centers. So in addition to pulling out of this deal to literally hurt the grain that would be supplied, um, from Ukraine to the world. Joyce, I want to turn to you, picking up on something Emily said just about sort of the global importance of of that grain deal. We had a Kremlin spokesperson saying, we are talking about a zone that's very close to the area of armed hostilities. Certain risks emerge there without appropriate security 
guarantees. So we have the dissolution of this deal. Emily making the very good point. This isn't just about uh, Ukraine and, and even the sort of narrow region around it. Um, this really affects the global food supply. I wonder if you could just speak to that, sort of what the ramifications of this are likely to be. This is really a bad turn of events. Uh, the repercussions, as Emily mentioned, are not just economically, but we're talking about security and escalation in, uh, in the Black Sea. I mean, this week we've seen already uh, the prices tick up by 3% and they stabilized. Uh, for the West, for rich countries, uh, this could mean inflation. But for, uh, you know, the global South, for Africa, this could mean starvation. Uh, as we've discussed on this program, uh, Ukraine is the world's uh, breadbasket. And we are in the growing season at the moment. Uh, so uh, for Ukrainian farmers who don't have storage capacity to put their wheat and corn, uh, this will go uh, to waste if they're not shipped out uh, immediately. So that's one aspect of it. The other dimension is the security uh, aspect, and it's uh, it's worrisome because the deal acted as a de facto ceasefire in the in the Black Sea. We've seen Russia refrain for the year that we had a deal in place from you know setting up landmines and blowing up ships. Uh, the attack on Odessa that uh, we're discussing is uh, you know it, it forecasts that this might uh, be uh, uh, be over and we may see an escalation. Uh, in the Black Sea against civilian ships, against uh, against others, if this deal completely uh, uh, collapses. Yeah, we've seen Russia targeting ports and grain terminals, killing at least 12 people, destroying 60,000 tons uh, of grain. Also in the region on Wednesday, a video emerged of what appears to be Wagner chief Yevgeny Prigozhin in Belarus. The video shot in low light is the first appearance of the leader since he led a failed uprising last month. We should keep on preparing ourselves. We should keep on developing. We have a new road ahead of us to Africa. Maybe we will return to the special military operation in Ukraine at a time when we will be sure that we won't be made to cover ourselves and our legacy in shame. David Rennie, uh, I, I read what the BBC has written about that video. Uh, the BBC writes, shot in low light, it shows Prigozhin standing on an asphalt track in a field surrounded by trees and what look like warehouses and tents. So we can't confirm the, the authenticity of, of the video. But what, what clues point to this being the Wagner chief and what do you make of his, his message overall? So the video was, I think, later reposted on a Telegram encrypted messaging channel that is linked to his Wagner group, was used for press releases. And it very much fits with other messages that he has been giving. He actually gave an interview to a pro-Kremlin news channel that's aimed at French-speaking countries in Africa and said that uh, he will be, you know, there's no reduction in our programs in Africa, we will be back. And that messaging you heard in that clip there from him, where he was saying that they might yet go back to Ukraine if they don't have to cover themselves in shame. That's all of a piece with the extraordinary allegations that listeners will remember uh, Yevgeny Prigozhin made about the high command of the Russian military and how they had basically uh, sort of shamefully uh, betrayed the interests of soldiers and the Russian motherland by sort of incompetent and corrupt leadership of the war in Ukraine. And that was the extraordinary sort of allegations that then led to that failed mutiny. Uh, against Vladimir Putin. The really remarkable thing is that he is not dead, part one, because uh, people tend <laughs> to fall remarkable. out of windows if yes, they, if they yes. cross Vladimir Putin. And that the utility of these 
uh, mercenaries does still seem to be of value to Vladimir Putin and his circle, because if this video is correct, he is in the next door country of Belarus, which, of course, is run by uh, a sort of shoddy little dictator, Alexander Lukashenko, who says he is using these Wagner troops to usefully train uh, Belarusian troops. And so you see, you know, Belarus negotiated, brokered the deal to get Prigozhin and his troops out of Russia, you know, to, to end the mutiny. And you see that very, very surprisingly, I think, given the absolutely direct challenge that Yevgeny Prigozhin and his men mounted to at least the high command of the, the Russian military and, you know, ultimately to Vladimir Putin, they're not dead. They're still armed and helping allies of Russia. And so I think this story gets murkier and murkier mm. and raises fascinating questions about whether Vladimir Putin is, in fact, weaker than we thought. The head of Britain's MI6 intelligence agency called on Russians this week opposed to Putin to join forces with the UK. Many Russians are wrestling with the same dilemmas and the same tugs of conscience as their predecessors did in 1968. I invite them to do what others have already done this past 18 months and join hands with us. Our door is always open. Their secrets will always be safe with us. And together, we will work to bring the bloodshed to an end. That's Sir Richard Moore speaking uh, in Prague, known as C, uh, in a very rare public appearance, I gather. And David Rennie, we heard Moore say some Russians are already spying on behalf of the UK a, how important are those efforts uh, in ending Russia's war in Ukraine? And B, to the point that you just made, we have some more information from from Sir Richard. We also heard from the head of the CIA speaking at the Aspen Security Forum this week uh, about what happened with that uprising in Moscow. What sort of new color or what pieces are we putting together as a result of what those two spy chiefs are saying? Well, I think that they are trying to play psychological warfare against Vladimir Putin and his inner circle. I, and, you know, there has been a lot of reporting about the likeliest threat to Vladimir Putin comes from potentially members of the Russian elite who think that maybe if their leader is weak, is making mistakes, is vulnerable, that maybe at some point it might be in their self-interest to turn against him. This is not an attractive or particularly moral elite, but they do have self-interest at their core. And I think you could see both the British spy chief and, as you say, Bill Burns uh, talking at the Aspen Security Forum, really kind of almost like trolling Vladimir Putin. There was real mockery to some of their uh, to their language. You saw Bill Burns saying, you know, does the emperor have no clothes? Or at least Russians are asking, why is it taking him so long to get dressed? You saw, uh, as, you, as you played the clip, Richard Moore asking Russians to join him. And I think there is an attempt to kind of set the narrative as a piece of psychological warfare that how this mutiny ended was basically a sign of humiliation and weakness for Vladimir Putin. So it's it's a very interesting piece of psyops, I think, done in public by spy chiefs. Let's turn back to Ukraine for a minute. Thousands of Ukrainian children have been taken to Russia and held in children's homes or adopted by Russian families. A secret deal is reportedly in the works between Turkey, Saudi Arabia, and Russia to bring them home. Joyce Crum, let me ask you sort of where things stand. This was the Financial Times' reporting uh, that this deal is underway. What do we know of it and, and what might happen here? Yes, and this would be really good if, if uh, this deal actually is happens and we see nearly 20,000 children uh, that Ukraine said uh, have been taken to Russia or uh, Russia's uh, occupied Crimea since uh, since the invasion. Uh, what, we, what we've learned from the Financial Times report is Saudi and Turkey have been involved in negotiations between Russia and Ukraine uh, since February to... Uh, 
uh, to facilitate the return of uh, uh, these children. Uh, they are either placed in uh, children's homes or uh, they've been adopted. Some have been adopted by Russian uh, families. Uh, Ukraine has uh, has said that only 300, 385 children have been repatriated so far. So we're really talking about a really big number of, um, of, of children. The other interesting aspect of this, David, is it's Saudi and uh, Turkey mm-hmm. mediating this. We've seen them last uh, September mediate uh, a prisoner uh, swap between uh, Ukraine and Russia. The other person who's involved is uh, the former Chelsea um, football club, uh, soccer club, uh, Roman Abramovich, who uh, is involved in these negotiations. He's obviously under sanctions, but uh, but these are prominent uh, these are prominent names. Uh, this week, we've seen uh, Turkish President uh, Recep Tayyip Erdogan visit uh, Saudi Arabia. Uh, Saudi officials have been saying publicly and privately that they have channels open with both the Russians and uh, the Ukrainians. They've hosted Zelensky uh, in May. So uh, these are all really good signs if we can uh, see a deal uh, materialize in, in, in the near future. And we should say Turkey also involved in, in sort of brokering that, that grain deal and I think kind of going between sides in that as well. Um, Emily Tampkin, Russian President Vladimir Putin is going to miss an economic summit, a BRICS summit in South Africa next month because of an arrest warrant from the International Criminal Court. South Africa is included in the Rome Treaty that created the ICC, meaning uh, the country could arrest Putin if he were to appear in the capital, Johannesburg. Um, Putin has agreed not to attend. I guess he'll appear via video link. But but what does uh, his absence tell us about how Russia is currently viewed in or by the international community? He's He gave South Africa an out here um, because they would have been in a very... Uh, a very difficult position had he actually stepped foot in the country. Look, I I, I don't know that um, countries like South Africa, which are trying to sort of increase their global presence and which, you know, see Western hypocrisy and uh, don't necessarily think of the war in the same way that many in the United States or in Europe do. I don't know that they blame Putin for the situation that they're in, Um, but they are in the situation that they're Mm in, stuck between the United States and Russia because of Putin, you know, and whether or not that's appreciated um, in South Africa or, or in other countries in the world. So, you know, I, I had someone in the Indian uh, policy community say, well, it's sanctions that brought the war to India. OK, fine. But regardless, um, countries that have been trying to maintain ties for historic reasons, for present reasons, for whatever, with both Russia and the United States and various European powers, that it became much more difficult with this war because of the ICC, because of sanctions, because of, you know, be, you know, because of trade, because of the Green Deal, be all, because of the international repercussions of this war. Mm. Um, so do I think that Putin is, is seen as a pariah in South Africa? No. Do I think that South Africa is in a more difficult position internationally because of Putin? Yes. Hmm. Let's move now to North Korea. On Tuesday, a U.S. soldier later identified as Private Travis King ran into North Korea while on a civilian tour of a border village. King was supposed to be on his way to Fort Bliss, Texas, after finishing a prison sentence in South Korea for assault. This is what an eyewitness who was on the tour, Sarah Leslie, had to say about that incident. Suddenly I noticed a guy running, a guy dressed in black, running for looked like full gas towards the North Korean side. Um, and my first thought was, what an absolute idiot. I assumed he was sort of getting a mate to film it for some kind of TikTok stunt or something like that. 
but he just didn't stop and he kept going. And then the US and South Korean soldiers sort of realised what was happening, chased after him, but um, yeah, they didn't catch him. He was, we were pretty close to the border and it would have been pretty hard to stop him from that range. But yeah, he was going, he was going pretty fast. Travis King, the first known American held in North Korea in nearly five years. David Rennie, you have visited this this border town uh, and the DMZ several times. Describe what it's like and <laughs> I guess how it could have happened. It's actually very easy to cross in this one very, very small area of a massively fortified sort of called an armistice line, but basically a border between communist North Korea, the world's most kind of closed hermit-like communist state, and South Korea, where you have tens of thousands of troops on either side, massive lines of barbed wire, electric wire, minefields, tens of thousands of artillery pieces on the North Korean side. It's an unbelievably sealed border. But because the Korean War ended in a truce rather than a peace deal, in the, right in the middle, there is this little narrow truce village. And on one side, you have this big North Korean uh, hall where North Korean dignitaries will come sometimes. And on the south side, you have, again, a South South Korean hall. And then in the middle, you have basically a patch of gravel about the size of a football pitch and these huts that straddle the border. And the actual line between North and South Korea is just a curbstone made of cement. And in fact, some listeners may remember seeing Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un, right. North Korean dictator, meeting on that kind of curbstone, Trump actually crossing over onto the gravel on the other side. So if you are determined to make a run for it, uh, you can get across that gravel fairly easy. We've seen North Korean soldiers defect the other way and, you know, being sort of risking being shot or shot dead by their own side. It's a tragedy that this young soldier has made this just disastrously bad decision because we, let's not forget, we have seen Americans uh, die in North Korean custody. One of them, Otto Warmbier, came back in 2017 and just clearly had been tortured very, very horribly and was in just the most appalling state and then died almost as soon as he landed uh, back in the United States. And so the North Koreans are perfectly capable of killing uh, American young Americans who get into trouble or who end up in their clutches. Joyce Karam, what, what is happening in Washington right now vis-a-vis this, this incident? What is the State Department saying? What is the Defense Department saying? What options, frankly, do they have at a moment like this? No, uh, truly, this is a very unfortunate and a bizarre uh, situation in in some sense with uh, you know King running ch- across the uh, across that that area. Uh, what the Pentagon uh, has said, uh, they're closely monitoring the situation, and uh, uh, you know, defense officials emphasize that uh, Travis King went there willfully. That's really important because the U.S. is trying to communicate with uh, the North Koreans that uh, he's not a spy and he's not on a mission uh, from the U.S. I mean, it's it's bizarre to think uh, he is the way he uh, he, he crossed that border. Uh, but that has been the messaging uh, from uh, from the Pentagon. The State Department also uh, confirmed that uh, uh, U.S. defense officials have reached to uh, DPRK, but uh, those calls have not been answered. Uh, Army Secretary Christine Wormuth uh, speaking at Aspen. Uh, she had to say some stuff about the mental uh, judgment and the stress that uh, the soldier uh, has been enter- has been under. As you've uh, said, uh, David, he was uh, uh, due to come back to the U.S. for military uh, uh, discipline. Uh, so what she's saying is they're concerned about about him, but uh, there uh, also there are suggestions that he has been under a lot of stress and uh, negative uh, feelings. I mean, this 
this is all coming uh, when tensions between uh, the uh, U.S. and North Korea are, are, are very high, you know, whether it's uh, sending the uh, the sub uh, the submarine deployment the first since 1980, or um, uh, uh, North Korea testing the uh, ICBM, uh, the intercontinental ballistic missile earlier uh, this month. This is not not a good time uh, for uh, for this to happen. Mm. Still, I mean, you know, the history uh, confirms that. U.S. and North Korea negotiate whether it's through uh, the pink phone that's sitting on the in the DMZ area, or whether it's through the uh, Sweden or the UN mission. There has been mediation efforts in the past. Uh, what we can hope for in this instance uh, that these are that these channels are activated before uh, more escalation happens. David Rennie, Joyce, they're referring to the the dispatch of this U.S. submarine deployed to the region as part of a security commitment to to South Korea. We had the North Korean defense minister issuing a statement in state media saying, quote, the U.S. military side should realize that its nuclear assets have entered extremely dangerous waters. Uh, A bit more from you, if if, if you would, just about the the broader context here, about the state, the poor state of of, of the relationship with, with North Korea now. Uh, which I guess some could argue uh, was somewhat ameliorated when when the former president, President Trump, was was in office and he had that visit that you mentioned just a moment ago. We're in a desperate crisis with North Korea, and I think it's a sign of just the lack of bandwidth that we're so busy thinking about the Ukraine war and climate change and all of the other sort of sources of instability that actually in terms of North Korea's nuclear weapons program, in terms of building missiles capable of taking nuclear warheads and delivering them to pretty much any city in America, we are at the nightmare scenario of a nuclear armed North Korea capable of hitting America that back in the day, back in the days of President Obama, he described as the single gravest threat to American national security when he briefed President Trump during the handover between the Obama and Trump administrations. And it's just extraordinary the degree to which we're so distracted that we're just not really paying Mm. attention to the fact that every, every sort of few months, we see a new, more advanced and more threatening test. North Korean rhetoric in terms of they said not only what you just quoted, but that that the North, this American visit by a, a submarine capable of carrying nuclear missiles sort of met the threshold for nuclear war. They <laughs> tend to throw around threats of nuclear war more casually than perhaps you or I might. It's part of their kind of uh, their shtick. But this is a very serious crisis. But I think the one piece of good news, if we're trying to clutch at any is that actually this visit by the American Navy shows that the current South Korean government is getting very serious about staying close to America. And I think the Biden administration has done really a remarkable job of repairing alliances and shoring up alliances, not just with South Korea, but Japan, the Philippines, Mm -hmm. others in Asia, not just because of North Korea, but also because of the rise of China, where I am. And so in some ways, North Korea is very cross, but actually America is showing that it's in pretty good shape at the moment in its relationship with its ally. David, I'd love to ask you about the latest uh, happening in China. The U.S. climate envoy John Kerry arriving in Beijing on Sunday, staying through Wednesday to talk climate change, meeting with his his counterpart there. What do we know of what was discussed? And uh, I know that uh, the former Secretary of State, current climate envoy John Kerry, trying to sort of couch that trip in, I guess, optimistic terms that conversations will continue. But no, no concrete agreement, I gather, between the two sides on, on climate issues. So we've seen this before, that John Kerry is kind of, you know, invariably optimistic and saying that, you know, this is such a serious crisis that talks must continue and they will continue. He has a good relationship with his Chinese counterpart, 
uh, Xie Zhenhua. He says that the two of them agreed to carry on with important things, really genuinely important, somewhat technical things about, for example, China doing much more to limit uh, methane emissions, that very, very potent greenhouse gas, mm -hmm. and that they continue to agree that the two countries, these giant emitters, China number one, America number two, in terms of global emissions, do understand that they have a responsibility to act together. But the bad news is that at the same time that John Kerry was in Beijing, we saw the Supreme Leader Xi Jinping not only not meet John Kerry, but go and talk to a, an environmental conference in China, where he very deliberately said that China's environmental policy will be determined by the country itself, not swayed by others. And that was a very clear sign from China that if it is willing to get serious about climate change, which is a somewhat unanswered question, it will be on its own terms. And that's the frustration for the Biden administration, which had hoped that climate would be one of the areas where in an otherwise terrible US-China relationship, they could both agree that the world needs saving and that they have to do it together. China is saying, it sees it as a point of leverage, that until <laughs> America satisfies a whole list of other Chinese demands, China doesn't see why it should play nice with America on climate change. Joyce, I know that the, the president of Algeria was in China this week as well. And, and for those of us who haven't been following that closely, why, why was that visit so important? Yeah, this is, uh, it's, it's really interesting times when we look at China, Middle East, North Africa relations. Of course, in the case of uh, Abdel Majid Tabouni, Algeria, these are old allies, the closest in the uh, North Africa region to, uh, to China, dates back to, uh, you know, the Algerian uh, revolution against, against the French and support they got from, uh, from China then. But, uh, but, uh, Tabouni visit itself is, is, is is interesting because he is seeking a membership in the BRICS, um, in the BRICS alliance with Russia, with uh, uh, with China, Brazil, India. Mm -hmm. uh, this summit is due to happen uh, next month. Russia already said yes, let's go for it, and China appeared also enthusiastic about, about such membership in the visit. And yeah, and then uh, the other um, the other dimension is they signed 19 uh, agreements. Some of them deal with technology, with defense, uh, and uh, economic uh, infrastructure. So, uh, so this is uh, yet another indication that China is feeling confident about its push in, in the Middle East just and a, North Africa. And it's just a yeah. string of important visits that we've seen uh, to Beijing here over these, these last few weeks. Uh, um, a less official visit here from former U.S. diplomat Henry Kissinger, now 100 years old. He met with Chinese President Xi Jinping on Thursday. Kissinger, of course, was an important player in forming diplomatic ties between the two countries in the 1970s. Uh, President Xi Jinping saying, quote, we will never forget our old friends. Why was he there? Uh, it was not at the behest of the U.S. government. What do we know of what was discussed? Well, it was an absolutely extraordinary welcome that the Chinese rolled out. And I think it's partly because they do like sort of figures from history and they the fact that Henry Kissinger brokered the sort of rapprochement between America and China more than 50 years ago during the Nixon days. The fact that he met Chairman Mao and Zhou Lai does make him a historic figure. But it was also absolutely a deliberate message sent to the current American government because Xi Jinping, the supreme leader here, who takes all important decisions, who has centralized all power, he did not meet any of the official American cabinet secretaries uh, that did come to China. He only met Henry Kissinger and, and laid down a kind of grand banquet for him and all these kind of soft soap uh, speeches that were made. And the message that they were trying to send is, if America would only do what China wants, then look at the welcome you can have. And the thing that they like about Henry Kissinger is that he takes the correct position in their view on Taiwan, which is that America should not 
go too far towards encouraging Taiwan to go its own way, that the correct thing to do, this was Kissinger's original offer, was basically abandon Taiwan, though he's slightly changed his tune since now Taiwan is a democracy. But fundamentally, that Kissinger worldview, that great powers should focus on their interests in a fairly cold kind of calculating way, not get distracted by human rights and values, and that the world is peaceful only if great powers basically kind of balance each other out sort of as kind of great powers sitting around a mahogany table just negotiating the fate of the world. That's Henry Kissinger's longtime worldview, and it very closely chimes with how the Chinese government thinks the world should be run. And the Daitai guest house has no shortage of those long <laughs> mahogany tables and the, the diplomatic theaters you say is so fascinating to watch sort of who meets with, uh, with whom. Um, pivoting here to the U.S., uh, Israel's president, Isaac Herzog, spoke to the U.S. Congress on Wednesday. To us, it is clear that America is irreplaceable to Israel and Israel is irreplaceable to America. <laughs> Mr. Speaker, I'm not oblivious to criticism among friends including some expressed by respected members of this House. But criticism of Israel must not cross the line into negation of the state of Israel's right to exist. Emily Tamkin, you heard the President of Israel there addressing some of the criticism that he faced, that that visit faced from some members uh, of the Democratic Party uh, in the Congress. What, what came out of the meetings that the President had with President Biden uh, and sort of what's your read overall of, of sort of the efficacy of this visit? The day went fine, right? A few, uh, several progressive Democrats boycotted the speech and um, there was some brouhaha leading up to it. But the speech was, you know, he, he got his applause. The, the meeting in the White House, by all accounts, was fine. Um, but it, it doesn't fundamentally, it did not fundamentally address any of the issues um, within Israel or between Israel and the United States. Um, I mean, the the, the planned, uh, there were thousands of people marching from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem earlier today in protest of planned judicial reform um, that they say would make the country less democratic. There, you know, this year is on track to be the deadliest year for Palestinians in the West Bank, um, you know, at, at least since 2005, when the UN started keeping track of such things. Um, there will continue to be growing dissent not only not not even primarily among democratic lawmakers, but democratic voters uh, on the issue of Israel. So it was a fine visit, but I don't I don't know that any of the more substantive issues in this relationship were addressed, or indeed could have been addressed um, at this visit. Because let's not forget that the, the, the president is mostly a ceremonial figure um, in Israel. So we heard Congress there sort of literally applauding uh, Israel's president uh, as he spoke to them this week. Uh, president Biden giving a warning to Israel's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. Biden saying he's growing more concerned about uh, Bibi's plans for judicial reform. The New York Times columnist Thomas Friedman sitting down with the president, President Biden, on Tuesday, uh, reporting he said, quote, My recommendation to Israeli leaders is not to rush. I believe the best outcome is to continue to seek the broadest possible consensus here. Uh, this week, the president inviting Prime Minister Netanyahu to the White House before the end of the year. Emily, I wonder sort of how you envision that meeting unfolding. What what does a future meeting between these two leaders look like? I think, I mean, I think that Netanyahu earlier in sort of the Biden administration tried to play it off as though all was, all was fine and well between the two. Um, he gave Jake Sullivan a very warm welcome when he went to Israel. So it will be interesting to see when the two do meet if, if Netanyahu takes that tact, right, to sort of say like, all is well here, um, or if it's a, a terse, intense visit. 
Um, it's been interesting to me that Biden has really tried to to, to uh, point blame at a few extreme members of this coalition. Now, there are a few extreme members of Netanyahu's coalition, but they're in that coalition that was formed by Netanyahu, right? So, so, so I think that will be the far more important visit of the two between um, uh, the, the two more, that will be the more important White House visit this year. Um, and again, I think, you know, we, we should say that it's, it's entirely possible that Netanyahu will choose to be cordial and that he will stress how, you know, how important the U.S. and Israel are to each other. Um, and it, that will not change any of the fundamentals either. Joyce, I wanted to ask you about another country that the president of Israel mentioned in his speech to, to Congress. Uh, Isaac Herzog mentioning Saudi Arabia saying a peace agreement between the two countries could be, quote, a huge sea change in the course of history in the Middle East and the world at large. Get us up to speed on where Saudi-Israeli relations stand right now and uh, help us understand sort of what sway the U.S. has on affecting that relationship. Uh, yes, sure. I just think we should clarify, David, that the invite to uh, Netanyahu was not to the White House. It was to a meeting. Uh-huh. Uh, the Israeli press is saying the meeting will more likely be in New York uh, on the margins of uh, the UN uh, General Assembly. Uh-huh. Still important, all in all, given the relations between uh, the two. But uh, to your question and uh, what Herzog man- mentioned to uh, Congress about Saudi Arabia, also a big priority for Israel to normalize relations with the kingdom as, uh, uh, you know, I mean, the Mecca of, of the, uh, of the Muslim, uh, world and all that it, it brings to, uh, to, uh, the Arab Israeli conflict in general. Um, however, uh, we're seeing still some reluctance on the part of the Saudis. Uh, they're obviously asking for, um, as we've read in Axios and in other uh, reports, they're asking for, uh, um, defense uh, security assurances uh, from uh, from the U.S. and help on their uh, civilian uh, nuclear uh, program. Also for the Saudis, uh, they're very unlikely to normalize uh, relations when, uh, when uh, we're seeing uh, Israeli policies as extreme as, as they are uh, towards the Palestinians, when we're seeing, you know, the growth of illegal settlements and tensions with the uh, Palestinian Authority in the West bank at an all-time high. So for that to happen, it's not completely out of the question. There is an opportunity, but there need to be some changes. Uh, We reported this week that a land bridge um, connecting Saudi Arabia to UAE to to Jordan uh, is already under uh, underway, we may see more trade incentives, more flights, uh, perhaps uh, Saudi Arabia letting uh, Israel join uh, in some UN meetings that it would be hosting in September. But as far as full normalization, we are not there yet, but it is definitely a priority uh, for this and previous Israeli governments. Joyce, while we're here, uh, the Western Sahara, Morocco and Algeria both laying claim to that territory. We had Israel recognizing Morocco's sovereignty uh, over that territory this week. How significant is this and, and what events led up to that acknowledgement on Israel's part? Uh, yes, this is very significant for Morocco, especially after the U.S. Uh, recognized uh, uh, Moroccan sovereignty uh, over the Western Sahara that Morocco uh, took control of in 1975. Israel has been reluctant in the 
uh, previous years to offer such uh, uh, recognition because it's afraid of what it means uh, for its conflict with the Palestinians and backlash from African countries. But what we've seen this week is uh, a significance, a significant because it was immediately followed by uh, an invite from the Moroccan king to Bibi Netanyahu to come visit. It also strengthens the Abraham Accords. And uh, we are waiting to see if Israel um, actually opens a consulate in uh, in Dakhla, in, in Western Sahara, and what more progress we can see between uh, these two countries. Now to Thailand, where the country's parliament has blocked the winner of the May election from securing the nomination for prime minister. That's the leader of Thailand's progressive opposition party who called the move called the Move Forward Party. That party won the May election after nearly a decade of military-backed rule. In May, he spoke to CNN about the challenges of becoming prime minister. The process is uh, three steps from now. The election committee has to endorse the candidacy. Then we have to elect a House speaker. And then the third step would to have... Uh, joint voting between the lower house and the upper house. That's where it's uh, politics of elected by 25 million people against appointed of senators from uh, military uh, coup back uh, in the last decade. So that will be the kind of uh, struggles that people are uh, looking at. That's Peter Limgerowenrot uh, and David Rennie. I'd love to just sort of get your your sense of what happened here. Why did lawmakers void uh, void his nomination? Well, I fear you just heard uh, Peter Limgerowenrot pre- correctly predicting the problem, which is that when the Thai military took over, they constructed this Senate, which is made up of appointed cronies, not just as supporters of the conservative military, but also the royalist establishment, and also business monopolies. It's a very unholy mix of conservative politics and uh, kind of elite business interests with these giant monopolies. And that politician you just heard speaking there, his progressive party directly challenged the authority of the military-backed junta and their supporters was going to unwind not just their business monopolies, reform the military, but also most controversially uh, remove the incredibly severe laws against being uh, accused of insulting the royal family, which can see you put in prison for 15 years uh, in Thailand. And he correctly said that this is the voting power of 25 million people meeting a veto of 249 senators put there deliberately to block him. What's happened now is fascinating, which is that having realised that there is no hope of the winners of the election getting to choose the prime minister, he's now turned to the second placed party, uh, Pua Thai, which is the party of the populist forces that had in fact twice achieved having a prime minister before those prime ministers were successfully pushed out of power by the military establishment. And uh, so we're now seeing this very baggy, very loose, somewhat disparate coalition of progressives and populists representing kind of urban intellectuals, but also rural peasants, trying to see if they can use the sheer weight of numbers of their massive election win to force their way past that constitutional roadblock put in place by the military and their royalist allies. Let's end the hour here uh, talking about sports or sport, befitting the, the hour that we're in right now. And we'll start with tennis news this week. 21-year-old Spanish player Carlos Alcaraz uh, beating top-ranked Serbian player Novak Djokovic at, at Wimbledon. It's great to win, you know, but uh, even if I uh, will have lost, uh, you know, I would be uh, really proud of myself, you know, in this amazing run, you know, making uh, history in this beautiful uh, tournament, you know, playing a final against a legend of all sports, for me, uh, it's, it's incredible, you know. 
Zalkar, speaking at Wimbledon after his victory, Joyce, talk about the importance of this moment as we look at this sort of generational transition that's happening in tennis. It was amazing. I'm not sure, David, if you watched the match, but that was one of the most uh, gripping Wimbledon finals. It went the 80 for, minutes set, right? We <laughs> uh, totally. It went. The whole thing was five hours. I, I didn't get anything done that um, Sunday. Uh, but I mean, we have a new king on uh, center court. Uh, he's 20 years old and uh, 76 days. Uh, he he. This is just a major win for uh, for Alcaraz, for Alcaraz, who's already uh, ranked number one, and the the new generation that's coming in tennis. I mean, many players have tried to uh, defeat Novak uh, Djokovic, who won Wimbledon seven times, but they weren't able to. Many players from the younger generation, you know, uh, Medvedev, um, uh, Rublev, uh, and others, and it it didn't it didn't work. So this is uh, this is. A, a turn, uh, turn in, in, in events, uh, turning the page uh, on that. Well, maybe not yet, but at least for <laughs> for Wimbledon. And this is, I mean, the first player who's not named Federer or Djokovic or Nadal or Andy Murray to win in to win Wimbledon in 21 years. Yeah, absolutely fascinating to watch for such a uh, young and uh, skilled player. And Emily Tamkin, to you, the Women's World Cup kicking off uh, in New Zealand and Australia. Any matches in particular you're excited for? Well, the women of New Zealand won for the first time, I think, ever. And they won in New Zealand, which is, I mean, congratulations to them. Of course, I will be following the U.S. women's team uh, and seeing if they can can hold on to to their title. A three-peat. We'll see if it happens. A big thank you to Joyce Karam, senior news editor at Al Monitor, who writes the China Middle East Briefing newsletter. David Rennie, Beijing bureau chief for The Economist, co-host of the Drum Tower podcast. And Emily Tampkin, reporter and author of Bad Jews, A History of American Jewish Politics and Identities. Thanks to all of you. <laughs> And before we go, we remember British singer, actress, and fashion icon Jane Birkin. She died Sunday in Paris. Born in London in 1946, Birkin spent most of her life in France, where she became a symbol of French style. In 1984, she sent the fashion world into a frenzy with her namesake bag, Hermes's iconic Birkin bag. Well, since its creation, it's become one of the most coveted and costly items in the fashion world. I don't know what in what interview they said... Uh... You mean Birkin like the bag? So I said, oh, well, now the bag is going to sing. <laughs> and I thought, <laughs> I thought, oh, gosh, on my obituary, it will say like the bag or something. <laughs> when someone said, what will you be best known for? I said, the bag, could it be? But Jane Birkin was much more than a name associated with a luxury bag. She acted in French, Italian, and German-language movies. Her decades-long music career began in the 1970s. She was a musical and romantic partner of the late French singer-songwriter Serge Gainsbourg. French President Emmanuel Macron took to Twitter to pay his respects, writing, quote, Because she embodied freedom, because she sang the most beautiful words of our language, Jane Birkin was a French icon. Jane Birkin was 76. Mike 
Kidd is our sound designer and engineer. Chris Castano is our digital editor. Maya Garg is our senior managing producer. Amanda Williams is our special projects editor. Aileen Humphreys is the editor and producer of 1A On Demand. And Barb Anguiano produces our podcast. The program comes to you from WAMU, which is part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm David Gura. Thanks for listening. Let's talk more soon. This is 1A. This message comes from NPR sponsor, ShipBob. E-commerce logistics making you question why you started your business. Time to outsource fulfillment to the experts over at ShipBob. Get a free quote at shipbob.com. ShipBob. The news can be disorienting, and it can be really hard to remember how we got here. That's why we started the Throughline Podcast. Every week, we take you on a cinematic trip into the past to better understand the present. Listen now to the Throughline Podcast from NPR.